for our Bibles today, and it's with great anticipation that we open them to study, to hear from you, this ancient book, long preserved for our good. And Father, may our study of it today only grow us in our love for Jesus, in our understanding of who you are and what it means to live for you and to meet your expectations as our creator God, before whom one day we will stand and give an account. Father, thank you that this ancient book is ever relevant and that it never goes out of style and it is never out of date. And Father, we just ask that you'll use it now, even as we begin an entirely new series, that your word will just come alive to us, be useful and helpful in every way. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, as you know, Easter's over and it's time for us to begin a new sermon series. And some weeks ago, I began to ponder and to pray, okay, Lord, what do you have for us as a church? And, and uh, what is it that we should do here? And how are we going to do this? And it occurred to me that this might be a good time for a series on the Ten Commandments. But then I began to think about that and I thought... Maybe not. And I could think of a number of reasons why not to do a series on the Ten Commandments. For example, not the least of, it's just really ancient and old. I mean, it's really old. What does that have to do with us today? Who cares about these old words that were given to Israel of old? We're the church, not Israel. And then I was thinking about the spirit of antinomianism that has swept through our country. Antinomianism, is, the, the antinomianist, he's a person that believes there are no norms, there are no absolutes of right and wrong. And we have indeed succumbed in our culture and our society to, to, to moral relativism and with some kind of an arrogance, we think we can just decide to be whatever we want to be. And I think, well, it's old it's so old and nobody's going to care about it. This isn't American Pickers. That's the only place where old counts. And the antinomianist society, the relativism of our, the relativistic mindset of our day, maybe people won't receive it. How about the godlessness of this age? I mean, if ever we've succeeded at something, we have succeeded at killing God. For 40 years, we've been teaching boys and girls in our schools that they crept out of some primordial swamp slime and evolved from nothing and that they're nothing more than an advanced animal. Therefore, there is no creator God. There is no holy God before whom we give an account. So if there is no God, then the Bible doesn't count. So therefore, just the general godlessness of the age is a good reason to kind of just let this thing go. Then I was thinking about our young people specifically. Maybe it would be good for our young people to have a series on the Ten Commandments right now. And then I was thinking, no, because they've all bought into the postmodern mindset of our day. Postmodernism uh, has to do with the idea, again, that there's no absolutes. And, and especially in postmodernism, it's totally, absolutely politically incorrect to tell somebody else that they're wrong. That's like the biggest social boo-boo of the day. 
You have no business ever telling somebody that they're wrong. They get to choose for themselves. In fact, it's even great, uh, highly impacted the parenting of the day. I want my boy or girl to decide what they're going to believe when they grow up. You can even hear it in the way our young people speak. It's not even popular to, to speak with conviction our young people and in our culture, our young people, they even, they even raise their voice at the end of their sentences with an imperative. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, maybe. I, I heard a poem that captured this concept about our culture by a guy named Taylor Molly. I don't know him, of him very much. He's an educator who uses poetry to make points. And he wrote a poem that maybe you've heard It's called, Totally Like Whatever You Know. (laughs) He's talking about how no one speaks with conviction and our young people raise their voice in question about everything. Let me see if I can read it the way I kind of think it sounds. His poem, Totally Like Whatever You Know, goes like this. In case you hadn't noticed, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about. Or believe strongly in what you're saying? Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows have been attaching themselves to the end of our sentences, even when those sentences aren't like questions, you know? (laughs) Declarative sentences, so-called, because they used to like declare things to be true, okay? As opposed to other things are like totally, you know, not have been infected by a totally hip and tragically cool interrogative tone, you know? Like, don't think I'm uncool just because I've noticed this. This is just like the word on the street, you know? It's like what I've heard. I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions, okay? I'm just inviting you to join me in the pool of my own uncertainty. He goes on to say... What has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like chopped down with the rest of the rainforest? Or do we have like nothing to say? Has society become so like totally, I mean, absolutely, uh, you know, that we've just gotten to the point where it's just like uh, whatever. And then I got to thinking that All of these things, moral relativism, antinomianism, pluralism, the age of the scriptures, and the question marks with which our youth live are all the very reasons that we need to have this series. That we are in a culture that is adrift morally with a broken compass and has no direction And so every man just does that which is right in his own eyes. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19 as we enter into this study that we will take the next 10 or 11 weeks following, depending on how we group these messages together. We plan to deal with each of the commandments in an individual message. We might start out with the first two together, you know. But I want you to see, first of all, as we enter in, that where we are in the setting, when Moses received these 
commandments and where we are in the history of Israel. And we begin in Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to look at the first few verses of chapter 19. And we find where we are chronologically in the history of Israel. I assume that Moses, and most it's widely accepted that Moses was largely responsible for recording the first five books of our Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preserved for us today. He records in chapter 19, verse 1, that it was on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and they came into the wilderness of Sinai and there they encamped in the wilderness and there Israel encamped before the mountain. That would be Mount Sinai. Verse 3, while Moses went up to God and the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So you can picture it. We know well the stories of the ten plagues of Egypt and how they came into the promised land, this land of Canaan, that they took in conquest. God had given it to them. God was using them also as an instrument of judgment on the pagan people who had removed themselves far from God and were uh, out. God was out of patience. And so the Israelites would come into this new land and they would sweep it clean and they would take care of it as their own. And so they're just three months, three moons, the ESV says, three months removed from when Pharaoh released them and they headed into the wilderness. They're under Moses' leadership. His assistant is General Joshua. They've come into this plain of Sinai. There is Mount Sinai. There's probably several million of the Israelites, men, women, and children together with all of their possessions. They have priests. They have leaders. Their overseer is Moses. God has called Moses up on the mountain. And we now have portrayed for us what is a most serious and and really a very scary picture of what happens. It must have been just incredibly awesome. You can picture it in your mind's eye. I don't know if you've been watching the Bible on the History Channel. Uh, I guess I have not. Some of the things they do have been helpful. Some of the things have not been so helpful. It does seem to help the imagination a little bit to picture, but most of us are well equipped to do that on our own. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, so they were there at the base of the mountain for three days, God had instructed Moses now to come up. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and thick cloud on the mountain. So you can imagine as they rose for the day, There they are encamped. They can feel the vibration of the thunder. The ground is shaking. There's lightning. There's fire. There's smoke. It's just a different kind of a day. And then they hear a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. It's a fearful thing that happens here. Verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. I love that phrase right there. Hey, you guys, come meet God. You know, they come out of, they're going to meet God. They're going to meet God. Imagine that. Today, you get to meet God. That's an amazing reality. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, verse 18, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And I'm sure that the whole plain was just shaking as the mountain trembled. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. I assume that the Israelites could hear the thunder, but they could not necessarily hear the audible voice of God as Moses could. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, verse 20, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. I think Moses' heart was pounding in his chest, don't you? And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord, I love this phrase, break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, God, you've already given us instruction, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So we've done that. We've put barriers and people to keep people from coming. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up. The Lord repeats himself to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. How's that for your loving, sweet God? The mountain is trembling, there's fire, there's smoke, and God is going to meet the people. The people are going to meet God that day. Had to be a a thing of fear, had to be so serious and so scary just overwhelming. And then verse chapter 20, let's read our Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. 
And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We'll stop there. Wow. What a scene. What a scene. This morning, I just want to lay a groundwork for our future weeks. I have four things that I want to share from my pastor's heart to the congregation that I think will help us as we study this and why we should study it. There's a couple things that are implicit in the passage as to why we should study it. Some people think, well, that's for Israel, not the church. One of the things that you're going to see is that every single item on the list, all ten, are reiterated and retaught in the New Testament with detail. Everything that Israel was told in the Ten Commandments by God of old, the church is taught in the New Testament to live out. Let your eyes look down at chapter 20, verse 1. I like the way the chapter starts. It says, and God spoke. I would say, need we any other reason for our study than those words right there? God spoke. Why wouldn't we want to study this? What did God say? I want to know what God said. Do you want to know what God said? Of course I want to know what God said. Let's study what God said. And God spoke. That's reason enough to study, but let your eyes go to verse 20, chapter 20, verse 20, and look what he says. Moses says in chapter 20, Moses said to the people, 20 of 20, Do not fear... For God has come to test you. Moses cautions them. You don't have to be totally afraid right now. They are so overwhelmed with the awe and the fear of God that they said to Moses, you speak to us. We don't even want God to speak to us. We're afraid we'll die if we hear his voice. And he goes on to say, do not fear for God has come to test you. Now notice that, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The second implicit reason in the passage that we need to study this in the church today. Number one, God has spoken. We had better listen. Number two, to keep us from sinning. If anything that is needed in the church today could be described or brought in among us that would benefit us the most, it would be to have a a renewal of the fear of God in our lives so that we do not sin. It bothers me in my own life. It bothers me as I shepherd the congregation how comfortable we've become with sin. We each have our own little level of comfort. We get a little bit above it. We push it back down to our comfort zone. We have all our little things that we're okay with. And as long as we can manage our sin, we're okay. At a greater level, I've been concerned about younger people just having no fear of God, naming the name of Christ, and believing that they can just live any way they want to live. It's remarkable to me. I see this firsthand in my study as young adults come to me and want me to do their wedding. This has happened twice this winter. Two different occasions, two different couples coming to my office, and I have a criteria of three things that I want to know and I want to approve of before I say, I'll do your wedding. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says a pastor has to do weddings. Have you ever noticed that? 
And uh, so I figure, okay, I'll just uh, make up this criteria here. Number one is very biblical. I think they're all biblical. Number one is we cannot have an unequal yoke or union here, right? We have to have two born-again believers or we have to have two unsaved people. Unsaved people need to be married just like saved people. But we can't take a born-again person and a non-Christian, a non-believing person, and bring them together in an unequal union. We can't do that. The second criteria that I have is, do they have the blessing of their parents in their lives? Have their parents given their blessing on this union? Number three, what about the wisdom principles of the Word of God? Yeah, I don't have a job, and I don't have a car, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm a freshman in college, and I have this, and I don't have that. You know, sometimes it might be God's will for you to get married, but it's usually not God's will for you to get married if you violate, like, every wisdom principle that's in the Word of God. And so when those three things, those three, three things come together, I'll say, I'll do your wedding. Somewhere in the conversation, I look at them, and I say, now, I need to ask you a question. It's a little bit personal. And this is what I'll ask. Um, and I know, you know, usually if it's a couple that's a little bit older or into their 20s, I'll say, um, by the way, are you guys living together? Oh, um, yeah. And it has been remarkable to me twice this winter how at ease they were to come in and name the name of Christ, criteria number one, receive the blessing of their parents, number two, and then very comfortably tell their pastor, yeah, we're living together. So my response to that is, okay, if they pass the other three, I'll say, I'll do your wedding, but it has to be inside of the next 14 days. We have two weeks to get your wedding done, and it cannot be a huge hoopla. We have to get it done in my office. We'll do it today. Go get your license. We'll do it tomorrow. Or we'll meet in front of the church, and Miss Debbie will have some flowers there. You get your closest friends and family. We'll do your wedding. Oh, no, no, we want a Christmas wedding next year. No, no, we want the fall foliage. Well, then I can't help you. They get up, and they leave my office, and most of the time, never come back to church. Just remarkable to me how comfortable we are to just blatantly sin in the face of a holy God. And that's just one example. And so, I want to very quickly just point out to you this morning why I think this is a valuable sermon series for us. By the way, uh, let me challenge the younger people that are here today. I really do have young people, a younger generation in mind with this series. I am so concerned about the, the moral decadence of our day and the lack of the fear and awe and respect of God and parents that we see in our culture. I want to make a deal with you. If you're in junior high or high school and you will take, let's say, sermon notes to where I can recognize my own outline... I'll, I'll help you. I'll give you an easy outline to follow every message, you know, and you can, you can get something. This is a blatantly extrinsic motivation. I don't know if it'll be peanut M&Ms or a new study Bible. But if you're in 7th through 12th grade and you will take sermon notes during our Ten Commandments series and you can show me and keep them together in your little book and you come show me and I will look through and I will sign off on them. Nine out of these 10 or 11 or 12 messages that we're going to have and you take sermon notes at least nine times, I'll make sure that you are rewarded. If you're younger than that, you can take at least five sermon notes, okay? At least five sermon notes. 
Five different messages. And we'll see if we can work a deal with Pastor Everett and Pastor Mark and either get you a discount at day camp or pioneer camp or a free t-shirt. How's that? I didn't ask those guys and I don't know. I might have to fund it myself, but we'll see. So you do that, will you? So that you listen and then you have to show them to me. You have to find me in the foyer or find me and I will look at them and I'll make sure that I agree. And then maybe I'll have some kind of a voucher or something that you can turn in. I, I am shameless. I just want you to listen. I want you to get this. I, I think it's whatever you'll do to listen. I think it'll help you, young people. It'll help you so much. Old people, 19 and above, you're on your own. This is for you too. All right, even honor your father and mother is for all you oldsters in here. We'll talk about that. It's good for you to take sermon notes. You can try to impress me enough with your sermon taking, sermon note taking, that I might do something nice for you. I don't know. I might come wash your car or something. Okay. Well, we must quickly look at what's on my heart here. I think that this will be good for us because I think that when we study the Ten Commandments, we recognize that it is a call to us as a pastor and a congregation, number one, that we, it is a call to listen. You could write that down in your outline. It's a call to listen, number one, a call to listen. Think about it. God has spoken, 20 verse 1, look what it says, and God spoke. So one of the great benefits that we're going to have here is that we are going to listen to God. He's going to speak to us through this series. You do have to remember, though, that we're not good at listening to God. Do you know that? Historically and biblically, we're not good at listening to God. Let's go way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember where we find Adam and Eve one evening when we hear the voice of God coming in the garden? Adam, where are you? Adam, I've come to fellowship with you. And oh, Adam and Eve are hunkered down behind the bushes, right? And they're saying, shh, shh, Adam, shh, Eve, shh, shh. He, he might miss us. He might walk by. We don't. God wants to come and talk to them, and they're hiding, hoping he'll walk past them. What is that all about? And we see it over and over when God wants to speak to people, they do not want to listen. They put their fingers in their ears. Noah, that servant of righteousness, Genesis chapter 6. The world is filled with filth and immorality, and it's just pure pagan. And there's one righteous man, and God is going to bring condemnation on them, which he always does. The wages of sin is always death. And that servant of righteousness, Noah, builds his ark and preaches the word of God for 120 years, and no one wants to listen to him. They refuse to listen. It goes on and on. You can give illustration after illustration. Think about the historical books and the kings of Israel. They completely, utterly lost the word of God. They were worshiping Baals and Asherah poles. And they had high places set apart for pagan worship. And there wasn't even one copy of the word of God in the country. And you remember that story in 2 Chronicles where the boy king, 2 Chronicles 34, the boy king Josiah, remember him? Eight years old when God put him on the throne. He starts a renovation project. They break through a wall and what do they find? A pile of scrolls. They bring it to him. Nobody even recognizes what it is. One of the priests looks at This is the word of God. And, they, and under Josiah's leadership, even though he's a youth, they begin to listen to God again. We're just no good at listening to God. Over and over and over we have illustration of it. You move into the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations. Lamentations wasn't a prophet. Lamentations was Jeremiah lamenting. 
What was he lamenting? He was lamenting that nobody would listen to God. He wrote, Jeremiah wrote in chapter 6, verse 10, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? God has told him to give a warning. And Jeremiah says, well, who am I supposed to speak to? Who do you want me to give warning to? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. Do you know people like that? Behold, to them, the word of God is an object of scorn. And they take no pleasure in it. How am I supposed to give them the word of God? They don't want to hear it. Reminds me of Bill O'Reilly and his Bible thumpers. Yeah, I'm watching some review of that, and you know, I don't disagree with Bill O'Reilly and his human logic. Basically, they were talking about the homosexual gay marriage situation that's been in the uh, Supreme Court and catching a lot of interest in news right now, and the winds of change have really swept across our country in that area. And Bill O'Reilly was pointing out on his show the other night, maybe many of you saw it, there's pointing out the fact that the Bible thumpers need to quit quoting the scripture. You'll never win this argument on the Bible. His point was, and he used the abortion issue as his illustration, where humanly speaking, it's logical. He said the reason the pro-lifers have gained traction and have gained momentum and that Percentage-wise, more people believe that life begins at conception than not in our country now and that the, the pro-deathers are losing the argument is because scientifically we've been able to prove when life begins and we've been able to look inside the womb. We need science and if you're going to win the homosexual debate, you've got to have science make a statement. That's nothing other than a secular humanist who refuses to hear the word of God. But it's absolutely true about our country. They don't care what the Bible says. You try talking to your people at work. Quote scripture. They couldn't care less. But what bothers I don't expect the worldling pagans to care about the Bible. But what bothers me is when the church doubts the word of God. What bothers me is when God's people are embarrassed of the word of God. What bothers me is when God's people don't have ears to hear the word of God. And so one of the things we want to accomplish as a group together, is we want to listen to God. It's a call to listen. God has spoken. It's interesting to me that ultimately, even in the form of the Lord Jesus, John said in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word is Jesus, and that Word, he goes on to say, came unto his own, and his own did what? His own would not receive him. They did not receive him. You want the ultimate word spoken to you? It's Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's the ultimate word. And they reject that word. We're not good at listening. Secondly, studying the Ten Commandments is a call to learn. Not only is it a call to listen, but it is a call to learn. You're going to see that these commandments are not arbitrary. God didn't just decide to talk one day. God got bored. I'm going to go talk to Moses. No, this was an act of grace. This was God condescending to man. This was God coming and pursuing man. And in his grace, he gives us words, 10 words. That's what Decalogue means, by the way, Decalogue, 10 words. Back in my opening list, I was supposed to tell you that I already preached this sermon series. And that was the reason I wasn't going to preach it. Then I looked and it was 2001. And I thought, well, that's 12 years ago. And I decided that it's okay every decade to study the Decalogue. <laughs> Pretty clever, huh? 
It's a call to learn. We're going to learn about the character of God. God is not just making nonsense statements. He's not just making stuff up. But every part of the Ten Commandments springs from the character of God. It's who He is. He's a holy God. He cannot look at sin. So therefore, He's telling us what we cannot do. The Apostle Paul said that the law was given to us to show us that we're sinners. In Romans chapter 7, he said, I didn't know that I was a covetous man. Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, I didn't even know that I coveted until I saw the law and then the law explained to me what I did. It's like when I'm building a wall and I don't use my level to plumb and I'm setting up a wall and I think it looks good and I step back, oh, it looks pretty good, but then I get my level on it and I realize I'm way out of plumb. Well, I didn't know I was out of plumb when I just look at it myself, but I put my four foot level on it and I see that I'm, I'm three quarters of an inch off or an inch and a quarter off, but it looks straight to me. And we live in a world of people who walk around saying, it looks straight to me. Everything looks good to me. I can decide what I want. Don't tell me what to do. And God said, I'm going to tell you. I want to teach you. I want to teach you who I am. And out of my character, I'm going to teach you what I'm all about so that you know how to live. He's holding up the four-foot level against us. And then we realize how out of whack we are against the standard. And until we have the standard of the law, it's hard for us to learn and recognize the character of God We learn that God is a God of conditions. We learn that He's a God of expectations. He's a God of standards. Nine of the Ten Commandments are going to be in the negative. Oh, that's another reason probably not to do this series. The church is so negative. But you can't be positive until you know what not to do. And so you're going to learn about the character of God and you're going to learn about the conditions of our holy God, His standards, His expectations, You're going to learn how to live. Number one, our study of the Ten Commandments is a call to listen. Number two, it's a call to learn. Number three, it's a call to live. To live in a way that is pleasing to God with His hand of blessing. How many of our young people are suffering the disastrous results of not fearing or obeying God and then they wonder why they're not blessed? You want the blessing of God? Then learn to live underneath the standard of God. God's going to say this clearly in the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's going to say this. He said, you do what I say and it will go well with you. You want to live well? Then do what I say. That's going to be repeated in the New Testament, specifically under the honor your father and mother passage, that it may go well with you, he's going to say. What's he saying? He's saying you do things my way and then you position yourself in a position for blessing. It's not a health and wealth gospel. It's just the reality of avoiding the consequences of sin that will follow you even generationally. And that's an interesting statement that he made, isn't it? That I will, about generation after generation, and that brings a lot of question, we'll deal with that in future weeks. Finally, I want you to see that it's a call to love. It's a call to love. Our study of the Ten Commandments should grow us in our love for God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 22... In fact, let's just turn there quickly and then we'll close. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. This is somewhat of a familiar passage. And Jesus has been talking to the Sadducees and then the Pharisees take over. And they're really glad to see that Jesus put the 
Sadducees in their place. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 34, when the Pharisees had heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, verse 34 of Matthew 22, they gathered together and they wanted to trick Jesus. They wanted their attack at him. They wanted to try to confuse and confound Jesus. They go to Jesus and one of them, a lawyer, I take it that means he's supposed to be really smart and good with questions, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, his question was this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in in the law? And they wanted Jesus to slip up and to say some part of the law is more important than the other part of the law and, and accuse him of circular reasoning and get him all befuddled. They wanted to try to get him tongue-tied and get him to embarrass himself. They thought that they knew more about the law than Jesus knew. And the teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall say the next word, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall say it with me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What's his point? You take your yellow tablet, run a line down through the middle page. You go to the Decalogue and you go to all of the Ten Commandments that are given, all of the commandments of, of the law and Moses that are given throughout the Old Testament to expand upon these ten These ten are foundational to all others. There are hundreds and hundreds of commandments in the law. You can make a line down your yellow page and you write on the top of the left-hand side, for the love of God, and on the other side you write, for the love of people, and you'll be able to fit every single command in either of those two columns. Jesus was capturing it and summarizing it. You want to know how to love? Then you've got to know the law and you've got to... The law is all about loving God or loving people. Some people divide the Ten Commandments list. The first four tell us how to love God. The second six, second half, six, show us how to love people. Let's end just reminding ourselves about the importance of this. You remember that young, rich ruler that came to Jesus who said, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question. How do I get into heaven? And Jesus said, oh, that's easy. Keep the law. Keep the law. There it is. Just obey. Oh, the guy's relieved. He's relieved because he says, oh, since I was a youth, I've kept all the commandments. I've done that. So then remember, Jesus gives that most puzzling response. He says, oh, then go and sell all of your goods and give away your money to the poor. And the guy's like, wait, wait a minute. What's Jesus point? So number one, you love your money more than you love God, so therefore you're not keeping the commandments summed up in this statement. You love your money more than you love your fellow man, or you would be just as happy to give him $20 bills as keep $20 bills if you loved him as much as you loved yourself. But we don't, do we? And remember how the story ends? He went away sad because he had much money. Jesus isn't saying you're not supposed to have wealth. He's not saying you have to give away your money to get to heaven. Jesus was simply showing him that he did not have love in his heart. He did not have love in his heart for God, and he did not have love in his heart for his fellow man. And yet he thought he was keeping the commandments, but the commandments are all about loving God and loving our fellow man. Do you know what? We have a problem. We have a big problem. We can't keep the commandments. That guy came to Jesus and he said... How do, I get, how do I have eternal life? And he says, 
Keep the commandments. And you know what? If you could keep the commandments from the time you're born until the time you die, God would let you into heaven. Do you know that? We don't hear that much, but that's true. If you could keep all of the commandments of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and you could keep and not break any command, then God would let you into heaven. You would show up on the, on the day you die in the presence of God. And why should I let you into heaven? I kept the commandments. And God would have no other choice but to say, welcome into my heaven, you perfect one. But we all know, don't we? We all know the stinking, lying, filthy rot on the inside, the envy and the lust and the anger and the hatred and just the murderous thoughts and just the the lustful things and the things that we desire to go bad for other people and we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart and we don't love our fellow men as we love ourselves and we violate command after command after command. So we have a problem. And this is the good news. When Jesus came... He said, I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. Guess who did keep the law? Guess who kept the law? Jesus kept the law. Jesus never broke the law. If Jesus stood in the presence of his Holy Father and and God wanted to look at the second member of the Godhead and say, why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus could say, because I kept the law. And it would be true. I'm perfect. And one of the great realities of salvation, my friend, is this. That when you come to Christ and you admit your sinfulness and you come, by, come to God and come to the cross, you get somebody, that's Jesus, the only one who kept the law for you. You have someone who keeps the law in your place and by grace through faith it gets counted for you. The blood of Christ covers your sin and the righteousness of Christ is given over to you. And now when you stand before God and you die and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You can say, no reason for me, but the righteousness of Christ has been counted for me and Christ kept the law and I'm covered. Christ kept the law for me and it's counted into my account. Praise God. You see, the law teaches us Grace. The law teaches us our need for a Savior. The law shows us that we're no good in and of ourselves. And the law shows us that we needed a law keeper to come and take our place and keep the law for us. Is your faith and trust in Christ alone today, my friend? Have you been to the cross? Has the blood of Christ cleansed you white as snow? Have you admitted your sinfulness, your lawlessness, and have you received the finished work of Christ in that he kept all the law for you and it's been transferred to you? Today, you can accept that kind of salvation from God through Christ. You can be positioned in Christ completely righteous as though you kept all the law because Christ's keeping of the law will be credited to you. Praise God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Before I close in prayer, you ask yourself, Are you positioned in Christ? Have by God's grace, through a decision of faith alone on your part, just trusting God at his word, do you believe that Jesus died for your sin, was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture, for your salvation? Have you admitted to God your sinfulness? You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and he's been raised from the dead, and that he alone kept the law for you so that his righteousness becomes your righteousness and your sin gets dumped on him and paid for at the cross so that a holy God can let you into his family and let you into his heaven. Right now, by faith, you can take that step of salvation. You can tell God, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus' righteousness. 
I need to enter into his salvation. I admit my sin. I believe in Christ. He kept the law for me. And that's what I'm counting on for my salvation by faith. My friend, you need to make that decision today. Christ alone is the solution to our sin problem. Father, open our hearts and our minds to these truths and give us understanding of this great salvation in Christ. Father, would you guide us through our new study of the Ten Commandments these next two, ten weeks or so, eleven weeks, as we open our Bibles each week and we receive a word from you that we would uh, hear your voice and listen to what you've said and that you would teach us and give us a renewed fear and awe of who you are so that we will not sin. Father, teach us how to love through these Ten Commandments, how to love you more accurately, more fully, more wholly. Teach us how to love our fellow man and how to behave with a heart of love through these commandments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.